I was very shocked the first time I ever heard Sean, uh, like he was, uh, he would never sing like his, for, to give me an example of a song. And one time he was trying to tell me, uh, about Gap Band. He's like, you know, they do that song outstanding. And I, my, you could have knocked me over with a feather. <laughs> Girl, you knocked me out. Yeah, you could have knocked me out. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, light worker and harmonic resonance communicator. This is the first week that I remembered that you're pulling all your titles from a New Age magazine. Oh, you're finally going to reveal my secrets? <laughs> oh, that's what's been happening. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't get the memo on this one. Nor did our listeners. I've been. I've been waiting for the week where Peter finally breaks down. I was like, "What the fuck is going on? None of your titles make sense anymore. What is happening?" But all right, Jeremy's just gonna out me. So yes. we we mentioned our, our cute little Christmas vacation we took in the the mountains of Pennsylvania, and uh, in the Airbnb that we stayed at, there was a stack of Sedona Journal of Emergence magazines, which is just one of the like preeminent goofball new age pseudoscience mystical magazine so i've been pulling all of my titles from like the last two months off of the uh let's see july 2018 edition (laughs) peace to all beings and i've known this for two months but like never realized it in the moment until just now (laughs) (laughs) well you obviously realized it on the first episode that he did that on and then didn't explain it at all. Oh, <laughs> and cool. I, and I didn't know this was going to be a continuing thing at that point in time. I would have inquired further then instead of him freaking me out. <laughs> I just loved the one week where you were like, just had to second guess all of your research in a moment when you couldn't figure out how my title related to the artist we were talking about. Yeah. Turns out it didn't. No, it didn't. But, Everything is connected if you think about it, Peter. Oh, no. (laughs) Put that thing down right now. (laughs) It's starting to make a lot of sense, guys. I'm going to mail you my favorite clippings. I'm co-host Jeremy Kick Rocks Ruggles telling Sean Hartman (laughs) to kick rocks. There you go. There's an opposition to this, Sean. (laughs) Wait, was that a premeditated title? Is that in reference to something else? Or did you just, uh, that come up off the dome? That's just, it just came out of me. I just reached into my... Were you channeling it, would you say? Well, I I sort of reached into my pile of rock-based titles and grabbed that one out. Nice. It fit the occasion. It fit the occasion. (laughs) Your pile of rock-based titles. All right. Well, I look forward to finding out what some of Jeremy's other rock-based titles are in future episodes. I'm sure there will be other opportunities. Yeah, for the for the next two months, it's going to be only rock <laughs> titles from Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> but I am co-host Peter, and I, you know, just wanted to actually take a moment to 
acknowledge my co-hosts, Sean and Jeremy, for something that they have done for me. They've enriched my life in a way, and I want to talk about it. Oh, okay. I can't tell if sarcasm or earnesty is to follow. <laughs> Complete earnesty. Oh. I have long struggled with understanding the art of banter, good-humored ridicule, something that is the way that people relate to each other often. And when we began doing this podcast in 2019, I found quickly that my co-hosts were very heavy and fluent <laughs> in the language of banter, and I wasn't sure if I could adapt, but I want to say if I go back and listen to our early episodes versus more recent ones, you guys have really acquiesced me to banter. Aww. And so I want to thank you for teaching me to be cruel, to be kind. Uh. <laughs> Wait, okay, so we've taught Peter how to banter, we've taught Jeremy how to appreciate smooth jazz, but what have I learned from our podcasting adventures? Uh, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> just just uh, some new age bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've just gone off the deep end. I'm fucked. You guys are improving and I'm just like spiraling. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm, I'm glad that we took this opportunity to have this really long intro. Uh, I'm sure that our, our guest uh, in the green room here is just uh, <laughs> loving waiting to come on here. Yes, uh, we have a special guest here, James Porter. Welcome, James. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Out there in podcast land. <laughs> it's going fantastic. Yeah, James, thank you so much. You are a resident of Chicago, correct? Indeed, yes. Which could only mean that you know one infamous Chicago music personality. Uh, Plastic Crime Wave himself, yes. Right. <laughs> He's a hard the man, man to miss. Who, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the man who knows every other music-related person of note <laughs> in the world, it would seem. <laughs> It would seem. Yeah, so what do you do in relation to music, James? What is your relationship with music? Well, I am a journalist. I've written about music for the longest time. And uh, I have a book coming out, hopefully in the next year or two, uh, regarding uh, African-American rock and roll musicians. And uh, I, kind of, I kind of practice what I preach because I, I play in a band right now called the James Dean Joint, which is kind of like my, uh, my little pub rock band. Very cool. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, except to say that because I mean, me and my uh, my bass player Dean Goldstein, we've uh, we're real big rock pile fans. I don't know if I turned him on to it, but means the time we've like you know dr driven along, you know, from band practice, and he'll have like seconds of pleasure playing on Spotify. You know, we'll be like dissecting the songs, even the songs they didn't write. You know, going, wow, that's a good lick there. That's a good line there, or whatever. You know, so yeah. Nice. Well, that is the album that you came. To talk about today, Rockpile Seconds of Pleasure. Yes, indeed. This was released October of 1980 on Columbia here in the United States, and we were going to get started by playing the song When I Write the Book, which is fitting. Oh, I just finished your sentence. <laughs> Look at us now, Peter. <laughs> we're, it's, it's really coming together. You've taught me banter. We're finishing each other's sentences. Yeah. Yeah, and this is Side B, Track 4. Well, I can remember Like it was only yesterday Love was young and foolish Like a little child of play 
lovers change I never dreamed out easily For now I'm just the shadow Of the boy I used to be This is a record I've been listening to for a very long time now. And this was an early, like working in record stores, pulling out random things, trying them out and finding cool records. This was an early one for me. And I just associate this with being at the record store, listening to music while working. And that song specifically has always been my favorite on this album. Maybe not the most representative of the rock pile sound in general, but it's just so dang catchy. I get that song stuck in my head all the time. Understandable. It's uh, It definitely feels like it could have been the hit single from this album. It was not. Yeah. But it, I know that it has remained in Nick Lowe's set lists and is one of his enduring favorite songs. So that, yeah, that's, if for those who don't know, Nick Lowe, the acclaimed producer and songwriter is in the band rock pile. Well, the funny part for me is that was the first song I ever heard from that. Cause I mean, I knew who Nick Lowe and Dave Edmonds were because they were big around that time. They would get a lot of airplay and uh, the, in the rock magazines, they were just apt to talk about a rock pile as they were about Lowe and Edmonds individually. So when seconds of pleasure came out the fall of 1980, that was like a big deal. I probably would have bought it anyway, but I heard when I write the book, one of the local FM stations here. And I was like, yes, and beyond the, the single for that album was actually uh, Teacher Teacher. And it's a decent little skinny tie power pop number, but I think they probably would have probably would have served them better if uh, when I write the book was the was the was the single. Yeah, an, an original versus a cover. So w- wait a minute. So it's Teacher Teacher was a cover? Yeah, someone else wrote that. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. I'm not sure who offhand, but yeah, it was uh, <laughs> <laughs> it definitely was not credited to uh members of rock pile. Yeah. And this is, yeah, as you alluded to, this is officially the only studio album released under the name rock pile, but it's actually the fourth album released by this lineup of musicians because they were releasing albums under Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe's names, confusingly, (laughs) which which I didn't know about all that complicated history. And I guess I didn't really, until I did more research, 
understand where this fell in like Nick Lowe's discography or Dave Edmonds. And they were already, they were all in their thirties by the time this came out and, you know, well-established as musicians. Well, the funny part about that is like everybody I've talked to who was uh, older than me and old enough to attend a lot of concerts in the seventies, they never referred to Nick Lowe and Dave Edmonds. They'll be like, Oh, I saw a rock pile and so-and-so. And they'll be talking like maybe 77, 78, 79 before they had any albums out under that name. So I think that's kind of telling, you know, what a tight band they were. Yeah, they were really established as a live band for the general public because they were opening for huge names before this album even came out. You know, like they were opening for Bad Company in 76 and 77. Yeah. And then they they toured the U.S. with Blondie, Van Morrison, Elvis Costello, David Johansson from the New York Dolls, just to name a few. Uh, Real quick. I just did the research. The song Teacher, Teacher is not actually a cover, but they didn't write it. Two guys actually from the band The Creation wrote that song for them, but Hmm. Rockpile are the first artists to record a version of it. Oh, well, thank you for that. Quick for the record, Sean. Yeah, okay. (laughs) The Creation, famous for their single Making Time, is featured in, I think, several Wes Anderson movies at this point. Yeah, and Painter Man's another big song for them. Well, very cool. So we'll get back to Rockpile, but I just wanted to mention, nay, I wanted to announce that this February, once again, we're doing our Patreon push where you get bonus swag on top of all the normal Patreon benefits. And now is the time to sign up if you're going to do it at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. And we don't normally mention the details we just kind of mentioned the patreon but we're gonna tell you what's there because we never do that's right so we'll go through the tiers one at a time here and talk about not only what you would get on a monthly basis but what you'll receive for signing up in the month of february 2023 and of course existing patreon subscribers you'll get all of this stuff automatically automatic so at the $1 tier, because you got to have a $1 tier when you're I'd buy that for a dollar, that is our early access tier. We will send you episodes a few days in advance of them going live, of them airing on the podcast platforms. Usually we send those on the Saturday before. So with the early access tier for signing up in the month of February, you are going to get an exclusive I'd buy that for a dollar season four sticker. At our $5 tier, which is our bonus episodes tier, the bonus episodes are on what, Jeremy? We Well, usually, unless Sean's breaking the rules, we do a 45, just a, a mini episode for a mini low record. Am I the only one that's broken the rules? I thought someone else broke the rules on a Patreon episode. No. <laughs> just me? All right, fine. Yeah, I think we've broken the rules of them being inexpensive, common... <laughs> And underappreciated a few times. (laughs) There's no rules on Patreon. Yeah, it's kind of... No rules, just right. It's the Wild West there. Yeah, so at our $5 tier, the bonus episodes tier, we we talk about singles, 45s, and 7 inches, whatever you want to call them. And those are usually about half an hour episodes. Sometimes we get a little more loose with the format with those. It's fun. We get casual with our beloved Patreons. True. (laughs) And with that, you get not only the sticker, but you'll also get an exclusive I'd buy that for a dollar button 
a pin. You can go and be loud and proud about your support and love for I'd buy that for a dollar. True. And if you're in the $10 tier, you could pin that to your tote, couldn't you? Oh, wow. Good segue, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, in our $10 tier, which is our exclusive monthly mix tier where each month one of us co-hosts puts together about an hour-long mix related to the artists that we're featuring that month. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking $10 a month just to hear some mixes from these guys? Like, that can't be worth it. It's worth it. I'm telling you, we put real, genuine effort into every mix. Oh, yeah. It's like a full day thing when it's my time to do the mix. I'm putting in a full work day on that sucker. Clocking in. Put on my hard hat, go punch the <laughs> clock, take out my lunch pail around 12.30, 1 o'clock, have a little bite to eat, and then I'm right back in the steam room cutting cutting that mix. <laughs> yeah, they're a thing to behold, let me tell you. So you can, if you want to hear all the, the, the character that we bring to these exclusive monthly mixes, that's our $10 tier over at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. And with that, you get the aforementioned sticker and button, and as Jeremy alluded to, a rad tote bag as well. Perfect for carrying records. Yes, they are the perfect size for record shopping. Which, if you're listening to this, you you probably go out and buy records, right? Yeah, I think you do if you're listening. Yeah. And finally, our vinyl subscription tier, which is now $25 a month. We've had to increase that a little bit from what it previously was at due to shipping rate increases since we first started doing our Patreon. But the vinyl subscription tier is awesome because our beloved Sean Hartman, DJ Hardbargain, here he will send you an LP, a 45, and a handwritten note. Ain't that right, Sean? Mm-hmm. I'm out there every month digging in the crates around Philly, finding that good dollar bin content, giving you all a curated selection of cool, I'd buy that for a dollar approved records. And he now has me assisting him with this tier. He's pretty much been taking the full weight of this one on. But we are increasing the amount of people who can sign up for this tier. It's always been a limited tier. And it's mostly been full for a while now. So go sign up now before it fills up again. Yep. There's now 15 slots available for that. That's total. I think there, as of this recording, there are currently nine people signed up. So yeah, so yeah, get on over there now to patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast, sign up for the vinyl subscription. And with that, of course, you get the sticker, you get the button, you get the tote bag, and you get an I'd buy that for a dollar coffee mug. Love the mugs. I'm, I make Peter order me an extra like two or three every time we get them. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're one of the old, only holders of a season two one since we weren't actually offering them that season. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> we were just testing them out. Super rarity. Yeah. yeah. And of course, as our previous years that we've done this, our designs are made by artist and illustrator Ellen Vandermeide. We will be posting the designs mid-month, mid-February to our social media on Instagram at I'd Buy That Podcast and on Facebook, just search I'd Buy That for a dollar. Give us a like. 
You'll see that content come through mid-month. If you want to see Ellen's work in the meantime, go over to voyagewithellen.com or on Instagram at voyagewithellen. And one more time, sign up now. Once February is over, this offer is gone forever. Head over to patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast and sign up today. But yeah, let's uh, turn our focus back to Rockpile because, yeah, really interesting band, kind of complicated history. We'll, we'll, as we go through the episode, we'll, in the simplest terms that I could find, <laughs> we'll try to detail their history. But before we get into the members and all that, I just want to talk about pub rock in general because we haven't it's not something we've really talked about extensively on the podcast so just so our listeners have an idea of what pub rock is this specific genre subgenre of rock and roll it was a 1970s movement that began in the UK as kind of a back to the basics musical movement it was a reaction against both prog rock and glam rock which were seen by the progenitors of pub rock as overwrought and flashy genres you know it's a a throwback to the early days of rock and roll generally the members of pub rock bands had an unkempt appearance it was a genre that was influential on the foundations of punk but as you know it emphasized more the the early rock and roll aesthetic rather than kind of a, a breaking from the conventions which i'd say punk was a little bit more I think punk was breaking from a different kind of uh, aesthetics. And when they said punk was breaking from conventions, I think they meant like, meant like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Yeah. However, though, it's like if you talk to the Ramones, I mean, it's like when they were getting started, they were very much influenced by the same early 50s and, 60, and 60s pre-psychedelic stuff that the pub rockers went to. So mm-hmm. there's a connection there, you know? Yeah, they definitely, the Ramones came to mind as, as ones who went more of that early rock and roll route with their version of punk, definitely. And of yeah. course, that was in the States. You also hear pub rock talked about as being a, a foundational influence on new wave. Oh yeah. I would say so. Yeah. It's like the, it's like the, the pop elements went to new wave and the angry elements went to punk and split <laughs> off into two. <laughs> a few relatively well-known pub rock bands are Dr. Feel Good. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Love those guys. Uh, Kilburn and the High Roads and Ducks Deluxe. Those are a few. I'd say Dr. Feelgood is by far the best known in the States of any of those bands. Within uh, pub rock, there really wasn't much interest from major labels in signing acts along these lines. So there were some independent labels that formed as a result of it. One of the best known is Stiff Records. Are any of you familiar with Stiff Records? I am. Yeah, yeah. they're a really, good, really great label. Yeah. Not everything they released was necessarily like pub rock because they also gave us Tracy Ullman too. But <laughs> like, <laughs> but, but for I think about like a good, I can't even put a percentage on it, but for most of the 70s and maybe a little bit into the 80s, they did a lot of, a lot of the acts they signed did kind of keep that pub rock sound going mm-hmm. into the punk era, you know? Yeah. For me, like before understanding really what pub rock was and getting into some of the bands associated with it, I always assumed it was more harder edged than it actually was. A lot of the aesthetics, especially with stiff records and everything feels very punk. And like you said, band photos from these people, it's, you know, ripped jeans and 
like boots and just looking kind of scruffy and you like and then you listen to it and it's all just super catchy pop hooks and <laughs> well personally i think the line between punk and pub is pretty thin yeah you know i mean there are some there were some acts if you dig deep enough there were some pub rock acts that didn't necessarily have the punk element like heads hands and feet you know but most of them it's like I really don't see the only difference between, say, Dr. Feelgood and the Dams is that Dr. Feelgood loved the blues. Mm. But I mean, but the tempos are there, the attitude was there. And I really don't, I mean, most pub rock to me pretty much sounded like, you know, like not that distant from punk to me. Yeah, maybe just a little less uh, like limited in their scope. Because think about it, right? It's like, think about it is like, I mean, the pub rock bands so that came along in 74, they're going to have a different frame of reference than some band that came along in 78. Yeah. You know, and it's like, if you're in, if it's 76 and 77 and the whole punk thing is just getting started, just started to find itself, you know, then Eddie and the Hot Rods, Dr. Feelgood, think about, oh, you're going to be, oh, yeah, that's punk, that's punk. But by the time you get to 1981, you know, when the whole thing kind of changes, you know, kind of shifts, you know, then it's going to be, this is a little different from that Dead Kennedys record I just heard the other day, you know, I mean, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got the impression reading about pub rock that punk is almost an outgrowth of it. and that, I feel it is, yeah. Yeah, like pub rock was a reaction against big stadium rock and fancy studios with overly complicated parts. And the punks were just... I had read like a quote from Johnny Rotten or something where he was basically saying that the pub rock bands, you know, they were in a smaller thing, but there were still too many people at those shows and that the parts were still too complicated for, for him. So punk was just like taking where pub rock was going and then just taking it further. Almost. It was a, a reaction to the excess of pub rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Johnny honestly. Rotten is exactly somebody whose word I trust, but Hey, <laughs> yes. he, he is who he is. I mean, what the hell, you know, <laughs> All right. Well, how about before we go any further, uh, we listened to a selection from this album that's a bit more in the pub rock vein. That would be their version of the Joe Tex classic, If Sugar Was As Sweet As You, which is side A, track two. Another of my favorites on this album. Yeah, this one is sang by Dave Edmonds.
you know, that one was a revelation. I mean, me being the collector that I am, it's like a lot of times I'll be like, I'll hear a song by an older band. And I'll think, well, that's a really good song. Then I'll find the original and thinking, well, I won't need this remake anymore. You know, but Rock Pal brought a lot to the table as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's got a different groove from Joe Tech's original, but I think they both still have like, you know, really good things that the other one doesn't have. So, you know, it's like I've been running neck and neck, to be honest with you. I agree. I mean, if I had to pick one, I might take the rock pile version, but they're both good and like both essential for different reasons. Yeah, I, I wouldn't pick because they're both really great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. An inspired choice for a cover on this album, though, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And th- this is one of the first songs I think of when I think of this album. This is one of the ones that really jumped out. I mean, yeah, Teacher Teacher that we mentioned, we're not featuring it today, but it's, you know, the, the catchy hooky power pop song which you know that these guys aren't just pub rock they're definitely also early mid power pop and uh teacher teachers more in that vein but the yeah then this one is uh definitely like some of those guitar parts really uh a little grimier yeah and driving well one of the early bands to earn the pub rock tag from journalists was the English band Brinsley Schwartz, named after their guitarist Brinsley Schwartz, who was heavily influenced, of all people, by Robbie Robertson of the band, which is kind of interesting to think about the band. You know, the late, they start in the late 60s doing this Americana that was kind of considered revelatory in the psychedelic period of, of music. You know, they were sort of also going back to roots rock with what the band were doing, a kind of a different variation of, I think, we're the UK and pub rock goes. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Cause I was listening to a little bit of Brinsley Schwartz getting ready for this. Cause I hadn't, couldn't remember if I'd listened to them before I'd, I'd heard a, a few songs, but in listening, I was like, man, there's a lot of roots rock influence going on here. Like, I, I feel like this kind of has some, some of the band vibe happening and there it is. That's why yeah, I even get a, I get a little bit more of a credence vibe too, because yeah. unlike the, unlike the band, Brinsley Schwartz, you know, they had tasteful hooks. Even on the early LPs, we were like more of a Corn Fred country rock band. They kind of got a little bit rockier as time went on. Mm-hmm. But early on, it's like, I mean, even though we're doing like the same kind of like, you know, Americana music, they were like a little bit more, again, I got to use the word hookier than the band. Right. You know, but but they, they had the hooks like that Creedence and even the Sir Douglas Quintet had. So I kind of see a little bit of a kinship there. Mm, yeah, cool. Yeah, I checked out just a little bit and yeah, I'll have to listen to more because I, I really enjoyed it. And, and it's worth mentioning, yeah, Brinsley. The guitarist uh, had attended high school with Nick Lowe, and they played in some bands together. And after school, Brinsley Schwartz formed a group that went through a few name and lineup changes before Nick Lowe joined, and that's when they became Brinsley Schwartz. And Lowe, Nick Lowe, was the principal songwriter. And he actually penned his probably his best-known song, one of his best-known songs, while he was with Brinsley and Schwartz. They recorded it, What's So Funny?, about peace, love, and understanding Mm -hmm. on their 1974 album, which was their last album. And he actually said that that song was influenced by, of all people, Judy Sill in her song, Jesus Was a Crossmaker. And Mm -hmm. to my understanding, the influence was that he found a compelling title that does a lot of the heavy lifting for the listener, just that imagery, you know, Jesus was a crossmaker. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? Yeah. Yeah. The first time I saw that song title, I was like, oh my God, that song is going to be so good. And I was a little let down. 
I'm guessing you heard the Elvis Costello version. Yeah, of course. Yeah, because it was recorded, covered by Elvis Costello in 1978, produced by Nick Lowe, who he produced the first five Elvis Costello albums. And that's actually how I first knew his name was his association with Elvis Costello. And of course, that was a hit for Elvis. And the producer of the Brinsley Schwartz version of What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding was Dave Edmonds. Of course. <laughs> yeah. So Dave Edmonds. Yeah, th- this whole pub rock scene is is deeply interconnected and it kind of seems like Rock Pile is at the center of the whole thing the whole time. <laughs> it does. They, yeah. If there is a center to the pub rock universe, it probably is Rock Pile. Dave Edmonds is a Welsh musician. He's five years older than Nick Lowe. He had played in a blues rock band called Love Sculpture. And he had a couple albums with them on major labels before they split in 1970. Dave Edmonds then had a huge solo hit with a cover of I Hear You Knocking, which had originally been recorded by Smiley Lewis in 1955. That's a big hit. Yeah. And I I didn't realize that it was connected to rock pile and Dave, and Dave Edmonds until uh, doing research for this. That You guys know that song too? Yes, I do. That's a great, really great cl- classic 50 song. Yeah. And the funny part is, I mean, Dave Edmonds first solo, he was called rock pile. That version of I hear you knocking was on his 1972 solo debut album, rock pile. And on the tour for that, he billed his band as Dave Edmonds and rock pile, but abandoned that after that, he but he was also at the same time producing for bands. He produced the first Fog Hat record. He was recording the Flaming Groovies. And of course, he was recording Brinsley Schwartz, as we mentioned. And that brought about a collaboration with Nick Lowe that started with Edmund's second album, Subtle as a Flying Mallet. Great, great title. Hmm. So in 1976, Lowe and Edmonds formed Rock Pile, this time for real, with guitarist Billy Bremner. Uh, who's a Scottish musician and Terry Williams, a Welsh drummer who had been in love sculpture with Dave Edmonds and had actually been in the first lineup of rock pile that were touring on that earlier album that we mentioned. Once again, all this stuff is very interconnected. As Sean said, the weird thing is that Nick Lowe and Dave Edmonds were on different labels at this time. Lowe was on stiff records that we mentioned earlier And Dave Edmonds was on Led Zeppelin's Swan Song label. So they released Rockpile albums as separate solo albums under their names. So the first Rockpile album is Dave Edmonds' Tracks on Wax 4 from 1978. Then Edmonds and Nick Lowe simultaneously release albums. Edmonds releases Repeat When Necessary and Nick Lowe releases Labor of Lust, both on the same date in 1979. So, and they kind of each lead, you know, their, their songs that they take the lead vocal on are the ones featured on those respective solo albums, both that, with the rock pile lineups. That kind of makes a certain sense. And they both had hits. Edmonds had a big hit with Girls Talk, and Lowe had a huge hit with Cruel to Be Kind, which hit really big in the States, his biggest hit in the States ever. When Dave Edmonds submitted his solo album Twangin' in 1980, this completed his contract for Swan Song, and this freed him of that contract. Rockpile were able to release this album under their own name at that point. So that's why this is the sole album that bears the name Rockpile, 
But this lineup, they did a lot. They also backed Carlene Carter on her 1980 album, Musical Shapes. Carlene was Nick Lowe's wife and the stepdaughter of Johnny Cash. Oh, <laughs> interesting. I think that's how Johnny Cash got to record Nick Lowe's song, Without Love. Yep. Yeah, they, they were connected. I know Nick Lowe produced something for him. And uh, they were, like, you know, on top of the world at this point. They were kind of the some of the forerunners of... They were kind of at the forefront of both punk and new wave at this point. They played the Heat Wave Festival in Toronto in August of 1980, which I'll admit I was not familiar with prior to doing research for this. That was kind of billed as the punk Woodstock. There were 100,000 people in attendance. You know, some of the big acts that performed there were the Pretenders, Elvis Costello, the B-52s, and the Talking Heads. Wow. I hadn't heard of that either. Yeah. So it seemed, you know, that Rockpile were, you know, at the, the top of their game. And then they unexpectedly broke up in 1981. And it, it seems that there's not a great explanation for it, but it feels like the, you know, at this point we're talking five years that Nick Lowe and Dave Edmonds have been collaborating on everything in one way or another. And it feels like that had just run its course at that point. And it seemed like there was a, a lot of disagreement between Dave Edmonds and the band manager slash stiff records owner. But I, I saw that there was different takes within the band as to why they broke up. And well, yeah, no, that was the same guy that uh, I think Dave Edmonds had been associated with Stiff years earlier, and then moved to Swan Song because he didn't agree with that. Yeah, manager. Yeah, it was like part of the reason why they were on different record labels, and then tried to make it work because this guy was Rockpile's manager, and him and Dave just couldn't get along. Yeah, but yeah, I had read that like Nick tried to be like, well, our creative partnership just ran its course, you know, whatever. And then Dave was like, no, this guy was an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the asshole? Nick or the manager? The manager. Yeah, yeah okay. like Dave and the manager yeah. just couldn't get along, and he cites that as the reason for the band breaking up. Because best I can tell, I don't think Nick and Dave have collaborated on anything since we've been in the same room. They did work again in 1988 on something together, but yeah, that's seven years later, and I, and it has not. There's not much that they've collaborated on. Yeah. Uh, Bremner and Williams did continue working with Nick Lowe uh, on his subsequent solo albums. Dave Edmonds. He went on to produce stuff for the Stray Cats, Fabulous Thunderbirds, Status Quo. He worked with Paul McCartney on some stuff. Uh, Nick Lowe is a producer. His, his nickname is The Basher, because apparently he instructed bands to bash it out and we'll tart it up later, is what he would say <laughs> to them. Uh, but yeah, he was a producer for Stiff Records, so he produced the first single by The Damned, New Rose, you know, considered the first UK punk record, and he produced their debut, Damn, Damn, Damned. We mentioned he did the first five Elvis Costello records. He did stuff for Reckless Eric and Mickey Jupp. They were actually, Rockpile were like the backing band on a Mickey Jupp record as well. He's worked with The Pretenders, Dr. Feelgood. We mentioned Johnny Cash. And uh, Billy Bremner, he, as far as I can tell, did a lot of session work as a guitarist. He's actually... The lead guitar. He cut a really good solo himself called Bash. And to be honest with you, Bash to me sounds like the, the rock pile follow-up that never was because pretty much the same vein I recommend. It didn't come out in America, but it's like very, it's really excellent. Pretty much in that same groove. That's Billy Bremner. Billy Bremner, right. 
Cool. Yeah, he uh, he's actually the lead guitar on the Pretenders Back on the Chain Gang. That's one of the really noteworthy songs that I saw uh. he played on. Terry Williams went on. Do you know what, what Terry Williams went on to do, James? Oh, uh, no, I did not. He was the drummer for Dire Straits from 1983 to 1988. So he's on Brothers in Arms. You know, he's playing on Money for Nothing and yeah, yeah. Walk of Life. <laughs> not surprised. I think Dire Straits were considered pub rock when they first came out, too. That makes sense. Yeah, I could that see that. Sense. Totally. Well, speaking of Billy Bremner, how about we listen to one of his vocals on this record, his version of You Ain't Nothing But Fine, Side B, track six, last song on the record. Originally by Rockin' Sydney, 1962, a Zydeco musician. So see if you can hear the Zydeco influence finding its way through into this <laughs> pub rock version. It's loud and clear, actually. <laughs> There's definitely some value in checking out the originals of the covers that they do on this record. James, when you said that this was one of your selections, it had never really been a standout for me. And I then went and checked out the original Rock and Sydney version from 1962. Mm-hmm. And something about do- in doing that helped me understand their interpretation of it better. And yeah, it it just uh, made the song stand out to me a lot more than it ever has before. Yeah, they did a good job of substituting an accordion with a guitar. You know, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what was what was like a, a greasy Zydeco riff became a greasy Chuck Berry ripoff, and yes, it worked. It's interesting to think about too, because I listened to that song for so long, just thinking like, oh, this is a you know classic early rock and roll type feel to it. And then when you hear the original and you think about it in the Zydeco context, it's like, oh yeah, this is obviously a Zydeco rhythm. And then 
you just kind of think about how much of that early rock and roll sound was really shaped by all these different elements of these roots rocks and Americana genres. Well, it's like, it's like I say, it's like, I mean, I don't think anybody really exists in a vacuum, particularly musicians. I mean, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure the fact that, that the, he called himself rock and Sydney wasn't an accident. You sure. Know, if you, you've listened to a lot of his rock and Sydney stuff from that era. He's, even though he's like in the Zydeco vein, you can tell he's kind of inspired by a lot of the rock, rock and roll and R&B that was on the radio then. So, you know. Yeah, it all mixes together and influences each other in unexpected ways. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like these guys were sort of, it seems like they were musicologists of, of early rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely seems that way. You know, the one thing I want to mention after you going through the whole bio, the last section, previous to learning anything about this group and just, you know, loving the record and listening to the songs, I kind of always assumed that this had to have been just a one-off fun side project. You know, it's got all the covers on it. It's a really fun record. There's no other rock pile albums and there's two pretty famous musicians in it. I just assumed it must have been a one-off thing. So realizing that they were like this secret band, on all these other records is very interesting. And the other thing I want to say in doing the research, you know, in modern day looking back at this you think of nick lowe as the star for the most part or at least i did but when nick lowe was getting started like part of his hype was like he's associated with dave edmonds the big star like he was he was the bigger deal back in the day also part of that might be because after the 80s dave edmonds basically faded and then mm. he's retired now you know yeah, and yeah. If, if nick lowe no, excuse me if dave edmonds were still cranking out albums and touring on a regular basis just like nick lowe does then you'd be t- you'd, we'd still be talking about nick and dave in the same breath like they would have been back in 1979 yeah you know absolutely because he's i mean i don't want to say he's forgotten but you don't really hear his name come up all that often and I, somebody um once and this is like some conversation i had online i mean Somebody said that they didn't understand what Dave Edmonds had to do with New Wave. And I just told him, punk and New Wave was more than just people with Mohawk haircuts doing bad David Bowie impersonations. I mean, there was some <laughs> there was some roots to that, you know, I mean, especially when the stuff first started. So, I mean, D- Dave Edmonds, in his way, as a soul artist, he kind of paved the way for like, you know, the Cramps, the Blasters, you know, and any other like rockabilly-ish band who uh, came up, you know, doing the punk circuit. Yeah, Stray Cats. Yeah, yeah. Who he produced? Yeah, you know, and it's that's it's worth mentioning. You know, we we played a few selections from this, but it's a pretty versatile record. There's they do play that fast thing one more time, which that's like swing revival, well before it really happened. It's got that piano pumping New Orleans thing going on. Yeah, yeah. We've talked before about the records that we feature on this podcast, like their how easily you can find them. I would say that this is one of the easiest to find records we've ever featured. You can even find the EP, the bonus EP that came along with it. Which I never realized was a thing. My copy does not have that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, t- I still see the EP, like wherever they, wherever they sell seven inch records, I still see the E and it's, to me, it's not that essential. It's basically like Nick and Dave singing Everly Brothers songs. It's good for what it is, but it's not something that I keep going back to. You know, but it's good to have, you know, and I still see that EP floating around too, every now and then the used stores. 
Oh, yeah. I really liked those, honestly. <laughs> I listened to that and I, I love they, they weren't bad, but I love the Everly yeah. brothers, so I, I do too, but, but most of it. But I'd be I'd be I'd sooner hear from from Phil and Don Everly than Nick Lowe and Dave Edmonds. I mean not against Nick and Lowe doing it, but you know. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to mention the album cover, which is a very distinct cover. It was designed by a guy named Barney Bubbles, who <laughs> he did a lot. He w- He's really worth looking at. And I only kind of just scratched the surface with my quick research through him. But he designed a lot of album covers, including he did album covers for Hawkwind. He did In Search of Space, Do Re Mi, Fossil, Latido, and Space Ritual. You know, three pretty major Hawkwind albums. And Rockpile as well. <laughs> <laughs> And a whole lot more. So yeah, if you he has a Wikipedia, you can read all about all the interesting things he did. I think he's responsible for like on Elvis Costello's this year's model, how some versions look like they've been misprinted. He was into doing stuff like that, like mm-hmm. fucking with the formula. Mm. <laughs> Barney Barney Bubbles, the design. Yeah, one thing I thought was one thing I thought was interesting about that cover is that number one. I mean, the front cover is obviously like you know retro fifties seen through a new wave eighties viewpoint you know what i mean i mean you saw a lot of covers like that that year you could also put like get happy by elvis costello in that same vein but on the back cover i've never seen anybody do this they had the tour dates on the back cover oh yes they there's uh seconds of pleasure weeks of touring rock pile 1980 and they have yeah this we mentioned this came out in october they have november 15th through december 13th tour dates listed and if you buy it after the cutoff date that doesn't make any sense yeah. But at least it's all right for archival purposes now, you know? Which I suppose just, like, also added to my impression of this being, like, a one-off record. Like, oh, let's just rip this out as a thing for our tour we got coming up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it kind of makes sense, though, because pub rock at large was known for, you know, its live sound and live band, so really pushing that element kind of makes a certain sense. And they're just living in the moment, man. Oddly, at the time... For Rockpile fans, people who had seen them live or had gotten to know them through the solo albums by Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe, this was sort of considered a disappointment when it first came out because of their emphasis on a lot of covers and it didn't rock quite as hard as they did. They were known for doing live. Uh, of course, with time, it has gained the status of being an all-time classic, but uh, that's I was reading that. I thought that was interesting. And I, I was even watching a guy who was a big rock pile fan had seen them back in the day and he was rating the albums and he put this at the bottom Hmm. of uh, the like four or five albums that are considered rock pile albums. Yeah. Well, Sean, wait, Jeremy has to do it. (laughs) Well, Sean. Okay. Yeah. Jeremy, what's up? Do you know of any albums that kind of sound like this album? Well, geez, you really put me on the spot. I'll have to think about it. But uh, first one off the top of my head. Bash by Billy Bremner. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there you that, go. that's a good one. There we go. Okay. First up, Graham Parker and the Rumor, Howlin' Wind, his first album from 1976. Yeah, I was definitely thinking Graham Parker should be recommended similar album. Another guy that's easily found in the dollar bin and has a lot of excellent material if you like this kind of style. Next up, a record that I've been really hyped on over the past year or so that I would like to do on an episode soon. Nick Gilder, City Nights from 1978. Glam Rock's Last Stand, to me. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, Hot Child of the City, yeah. 
power pop, glam rock, pub rock. There's, there's so many. <laughs> the the lines are very blurry. So you know they are. They are. <laughs> and last one, I, I believe the only previous episode where we talked about pub rock for just a little bit was Huey Lewis in the news for the album Sports from 1983, which is heavily influenced by this pub rock sound. Yeah, that's true. I didn't remember that we had talked about pub rock on that episode, but it's like... I mean, don't quote me on it, but I, <laughs> I feel like we talked about the pub rock influence and maybe just yeah. ever so briefly mentioned what that genre even was. But I could be wrong. Our listeners can go back and find out for themselves by listening to our Huey Lewis and the News sports episode featuring Scott Schaff from Pinwheel Records. In Chicago. In Chicago. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you might be familiar with that, James. Yes, I have heard of it. Believe it or not, I have not been to the place yet, but I intend to. A <laughs> whole lot of record stores open every week around here, so you know. Yeah. Well, speaking of Chicago and things you do, uh, is there anything you'd like to plug while you're here with us, James? Uh, yes. Uh, I um, I have a radio show called The Hoodoo Party that airs on the third Saturday of every month. If you live in Chicago... You can hear you can hear it from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on uh, 88.7 FM WLUW, and uh, if you don't have access to, if, if you're out of the listening range or you don't have radio, you can just turn it on online on WLUW.org. Oh, very cool! And I'm playing I'm playing bass a lot of like you know a lot of a lot of Dave Edmonds type stuff, rockabilly, garage, surf, you know the early, like early rock from like the early 50s on up through like the psychedelic years. I, I just stopped short there, but yeah, very cool. And we'll keep an eye out for your uh, book yes. you're working on. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, thank you so much for taking some time to talk rock pile. It's with been us. a gas and the giggle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were going to go out on a Nick Lowe song, Pet You and Hold You. Uh, why did you choose this one, James? It's a good song. And plus, it's got that rye. Uh, it's original. It's original, if I remember correctly. And it's got yes. that. It's got that rye Nick Lowe sense of humor. I mean, I forget the rhyming line. There's that one lyric. My middle name spells O R D I N A R Y. That is so Nick. You know that could that song could have fit in on uh, Labor of Lust. Yeah, yeah. It, one of his classic records. Yeah. It, and another secret rock pile album, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That was one of the the, the double albums from 79 <laughs> so meaning that yeah released simultaneously with a dave edmonds secret rock pile album so yeah it, it's really i had no idea the whole complicated history behind rock pile and really i didn't understand how big a deal they were until doing more research for this episode it seems like they really had their time and place. That's why you can find this record everywhere for cheap. I think I paid three yeah. bucks for my copy. You can easily find it for five or under just about anywhere. And it seems most of the Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe stuff is similarly cheap. I bought it when it came out, so I didn't pay a dollar for it, but I had to pay like full retail price, but it's worth it. And if my copy came up missing, I'd do it again. You know, it's a great album. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 1980, it was what was retail for a record like seven ninety eight, nine ninety eight, something like that. Seven ninety eight, now nine ninety eight was like way too much for then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hard to believe. I mean, Tom Petty once got on his record company's case because they were going to boot his, the, the list price of his next record up to nine ninety nine. In the Reagan years, that wasn't happening. He was like, no way. So <laughs> he, he had booted down back to like seven ninety nine or six ninety nine or whatever it was. But yeah, 
Yeah, I think he was threatening to name the album 798 or something to <laughs> really push it. God bless you, Tom Petty. <laughs> Pulling some Fugazi moves there. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, we're going to get out of here on Pet You and Hold You, Side B, Track 2. Thank you so much for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. This is Peter Cook. This is Jeremy Ruggles. This is Sean Hartman. And I'm James Porter.